Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, and Dr. Michael Simone, Interactive Associate and Producer. Welcome back, everyone, to Fertility and Sterility on Air, our journal's podcast. We're here for October 2021, and after a month off in September, I am glad to be back, as always, with Kurt Barnhart and Eve Feinberg. Good morning, Kurt and Eve. Good morning, Micah. Glad to have you back. Good morning, Micah. It's great to have you back. And we have a special guest today. You may not know him, but Michael Simone, Dr. Michael Simone from Penn is our producer on our podcast. He's on with us every month, but you don't normally hear his voice. But we have him on today as a guest speaker. Michael, thank you for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. So for those keeping track at home, this is October 2021. We're on volume 116, number four. And Eve, we're going to jump right in with you on the views and reviews, which is a good one for this month. Thanks so much, Micah. This Views and Reviews is incredibly informative, and it focuses on transgender reproductive care. Huge kudos to Dominique de Ziegler for being the editorial editor for this series. And a shout out to Molly Moravec, who reviewed each paper and got a really lovely acknowledgement at the end of each paper. Molly, I'm going to embarrass you. She gave our fellows at Northwestern a fantastic talk on transgender medicine, and definitely one of the pandemic highlights is the increase in cross-institution teaching that we've observed. I think every listener here is very much aware that the biological control of gender identity differs from the genetic control of anatomic sex, and gender dysphoria is characterized by a mismatch in either direction. Interestingly, 0.5% of the population experiences this mismatch, which is a huge percentage. And thankfully, society at large and the medical profession is really starting to pay attention and learn the best care for this population. Each piece in this series addresses a different aspect of transgender care. The first piece I'm going to talk about is medical legal issues surrounding legal sex designations. And this is by Vadim Steiler and Eliadashi. This is a really thought-provoking piece, and it explores the intersection of law and medicine when it comes to sex designation. The authors describe the medical legal challenges surrounding legal sex designations and the potential solutions. The binary nature of legal sex assignment at birth fails to represent people whose gender identities do not match the sex they were assigned. And so the authors raise the question, and admittedly, this is one that never previously dawned on me to think about, but should the law assign sex at all? And should we remove sex designation from the birth certificate? Currently, only one-third of transgender individuals who want to change their sex on their birth certificate or state ID have actually succeeded. And the presentation of inaccurate IDs has led to the denial of services, it's led to bathroom crises, harassment, and assaults. And so the authors of this piece propose that ID displaying the correct gender identity can protect a transgender individual 
and that state IDs should have optional self-selected designation with a non-binary option. Overall, really thought-provoking and calls into question our current practices at the time of birth. The second article in this series is called Masculinizing Gender-Affirming Surgery for Trans Males and Non-Binary Individuals, What You Should Know. And this is by Darshan Patel with senior author Jim Hodling. This is an essential read. It details gender-affirming surgery for trans males and discusses the various options and involved techniques. While I think I loosely understood the various options, this paper really spelled it out to a level that I had not previously seen. Kind of took me down a rabbit hole of Google and internet searching. It was eye-opening and very informative, and I learned so much from reading this piece. The authors describe the surgical techniques, and they show photos for both metoidoplasty and phalloplasty. Metoidoplasty creates a neophallus through the elongation and exposure of a hormonally hypertrophied clitoris that can be performed with and without urethral lengthening. This can aid in allowing standing micturition. It's performed in trans men who wish to avoid phalloplasty, which is a more complicated multi-step procedure. They also detail the various techniques for phalloplasty, including urethral lengthening, vaginal mucosectomy with closure, kind of like a colpocleisis, scrotoplasty, and penile prosthesis after phalloplasty. There's a detailed section on surgical outcomes, common complications, and long-term follow-up. And again, this article was really eye-opening for me, and I learned so much from reading it and would encourage our listeners to do the same. The next piece talked about the uterus in transgender males. It was by Marie Carbonell with senior author Jean-Marc Ayubi. This article discusses the choice of hysterectomy as part of gender-affirming surgery, the counseling involved, and the risks and benefits of keeping or not keeping one's uterus. The authors conclude that it's ethically acceptable and appropriate to perform hysterectomy for trans men who desire hysterectomy undergoing gender-affirming surgery. And the final piece in this series is ovarian, breast, and metabolic changes induced by androgen treatment in transgender males. This piece was written by Paul Perteo, senior author Guy Sowen. This is a review article, and it incorporates published data on end-organ effects of androgen treatment, such as ovarian tissue, breast, body composition, insulin resistance, bone density, and cardiovascular risk in trans men. They conclude that general and metabolic effects of long-term androgen treatment put transgender males at par with cisgender males in terms of lipid profile, insulin resistance, and overall mortality. Body composition is improved, and there are not associated changes in bone mineral density. The cardiometabolic risk and morbidity data are overall reassuring. I think that the biggest point that one can conclude overall is that the psychological benefit and the very real mortality risk in an untreated trans person outweighs any of the risks of hormone treatment, and I can't stress that enough. So overall, a really informative, eye-opening views and reviews, and would encourage everybody to read these. Wow, it sounds like a uh, really important and well-put-together slate of articles. We certainly encourage everyone to go in and read those this month. 
And I also just echo the kudos you gave to Molly. Molly Moravex also co-chairing the task force for the ASRM practice committee that's going to be writing three practice documents on transgender and LGBTQ care. So hopefully a lot of this will be incorporated in, into that as well. But Molly is certainly a rich resource on this topic. Michael, you are up next. We're going on to the fertile battle about fibroids. Tell us about that. All right. Well, thanks, Micah. So when it comes to fibroid management for fertility treatment, there isn't much debate about removing type 0, type 1, or type 2 fibroids. But more people differ about the need to remove those that are completely intramural, like type 3 or type 4s, because it may not affect treatment outcomes. This month's fertile battle pits two sides against one another on that topic. Should intramural myomas, specifically more than 3 to 4 centimeters, be surgically removed before in vitro fertilization? On the pro side, Dr. Marie-Madeleine Dolmans of Belgium reviews the different mechanisms by which fibroids can impact pregnancy and why they should be managed in some capacity. Specifically, she points to research that intramural fibroids can alter the surrounding molecular environment and even endometrial receptivity markers such as TGF-beta-3 and HOX-A10, if it's close enough. In addition to advocating for surgery, she mentions that if proximity is a potential component of impact, then how about the suggestion of medical management to move the fibroid further away from the endometrium? Next, Dr. Wen Zhang and Keith Isaacson of Newton Wellesley Hospital in Massachusetts also provide support for removing type 3 myomas, specifically those in the 2 to 4 centimeter range, but with an emphasis that hysteroscopic myomectomies with a resectoscope should be first-line treatment. One of my favorite points here is that even if you can't visualize the fibroid with the camera, if you've developed that skill enough and use ultrasound guidance, you'll probably end up with less damage to the myometrium and endometrium than if you took a laparoscopic or open approach. Dr. Stephen Gortz from Belgium rounds out the pro side by cautioning against defaulting to a laparoscopic surgical approach and considering a laparotomy or even a mini-lap. Much can be gained for both the experienced and inexperienced surgeon, like tactile feedback and improved suturing techniques. In the other corner are some physicians who advocate for other management options than surgery for intramural fibroids greater than 2 to 4 centimeters and all for different reasons. First, Dr. Malcolm Monroe from UCLA points out the data surrounding the potential molecular and paracrine effects of fibroids on endometrial receptivity is controversial. Patient confounders and study heterogeneity have led to inconsistencies with reporting, and these need to be cleared up with better studies before we can give a definitive management option. Mayo Clinic's Elizabeth Stewart joins the consigne to advocate for uterine artery embolization and magnetic resonance-guided focused ultrasound as alternatives to surgery. She points out that typical reservations about UAE regarding ovarian reserve and pain are usually overblown, and that the risks of these alternative interventions is much less in regards to bleeding, adhesion formation, need for C-section, and delaying pregnancy. All these should come into play when thinking about pregnancy, as well as long-term management for fibroids. The big question of reproductive outcomes following UAE has only limited answers, but Dr. Stewart brings out that the data shows over half the women who had a UAE have live births, and pregnancy and live birth rates comparing myomectomy and UAE may actually be closer than we think. For the final con argument, doctors Mathilde Burdon and Pietro Santulli from Paris again bring up inconsistencies regarding the impact of these fibroids on fertility, but more importantly lay out all the risks involved with surgery particularly the risks that could lend to worse reproductive outcomes than that were present prior to the intervention. 
Dr. Jacques Donnet sums things up nicely, stating bluntly that new algorithms for intramural myoma-related infertility are urgently needed, as well as the evaluation of the place of medical therapy as primary approach. After evaluating that response, then we can move on to a personalized approach, depending on the patient's goals, and that might include surgery. So a lot of things to take in here. Interesting to see where things go from here. Michael, it seems like there's a lot there. What stood out to me when I read it and you commented on it was, is uterine artery embolization and the risks overblown? And I don't feel like they are, but it's just purely my anecdotal bias because every time I have a patient that's had a UAE, I really struggle to get them to have a successful pregnancy and a good obstetric outcome. So I'm biased by my own anecdotal experience, and I know there's a lack of evidence, but I personally don't feel like that risk is overblown. I don't know what the others think. Yeah, I agree with you on that one, Micah, because that's the newest technique. Sometimes we worry about the most obvious outcome, which is pregnancy rate, which is, might not be the best outcome. You know, we have to have a good pregnancy and a good obstetrical outcome, not just, you know, counting pregnancy, so to speak. Um, Michael, this was a great overview, but I, I think that we're, we really didn't solve the debate, did we? Did anybody win the fertile battle? That's going to be based on the reader. I tend to agree with you that I think both sides present great arguments. I think the UAE thing in particular deserves some revisiting, but the data is so sparse that kind of all we'd have are these anecdotal evidences that we've seen over time, as Dr. Hill mentioned. So, you know, it's tough to say if anybody wins at all, but at least it's just some good reading. Kurt, I think that we should incorporate some sort of voting mechanism, um, maybe on the dialogue where where our listeners and readers can vote for the side that they think wins. Ah, but you can. There's a, there's a thumbs up on the dialogue as we speak. You can go there, click on it, and we can award at least virtual prizes for those that win the, the fertile battle. So everyone head over right now to fertsturtdialogue.com and vote thumbs up or thumbs down. Thumbs up for do surgery, thumbs down for don't. And let's see who the winner is. We're also debating this article at the Midwest Reproductive Symposium, and we will have a live audience poll to see which side the audience agrees with. But I think this is one that there's enough data on both sides that you can let your bias sway you. And if you're someone who likes to operate on fibroids, you will think there's value in that. If you are someone who likes to manage them medically, you certainly have data to back up that approach as well. Sounds like a familiar theme in life, doesn't it? (laughs) Yes, it does. All right, we are now going to move on to our original articles, and I have the first one uh, that has to do with male infertility. So we know that sperm can be exposed to oxidative stress during its progression through the male reproductive tract, and this can lead to DNA fragmentation. Because of this, there has been research into whether TESI sperm might be beneficial to use even in men who have sperm in the ejaculate. Now, this has primarily been studied in the setting of men with a history of poor IVF cycles and those with cryptozoospermia. But Rauchfuss and colleagues from the Mayo Clinic studied TESI in a relatively new setting. That is men with oligospermia, which they defined as less than 25 million sperm and the ejaculate. The studies titled Testicular Sperm Extraction versus Ejaculated Sperm Use for Non-Azospermic Male Factor Infertility. The Mayo Clinic began offering testing to men with oligospermia back in 2016, and they performed a retrospective cohort study to assess the outcomes compared to men who used ejaculate sperm with less than 25 million sperm. 
They had 32 men use ejaculate sperm over this time frame, and 19 elect to use Tessie instead, which to me was surprisingly high that over one-third of men would elect for surgical aspiration or surgical dissection to get the sperm. The Tessie cohort overall had a lower fertilization rate and fewer blastocysts at two versus four per couple, and the overall blastulation rate was 15% lower in the Tessie cohort. Pregnancy outcomes were similar between these two cohorts, although there was a lack of power and the raw numbers were 50% live birth in the ejaculate versus 31% in the Tessie, which could be clinically meaningful. So the authors concluded that Tessie is not beneficial for men with sperm in the ejaculate who are oligozoospermic. The commentary was from Najari and Thirumavalavan from the University Hospitals of Cleveland, and interestingly, they cite a 2012 study that I wasn't aware of. In this 2012 study, six men were studied, and it was a paired uh, analysis. They ejaculated before their tessie, and then they had the tessie performed on that same day. And the, the tessie sperm did have lower DNA fragmentation, which supports the biologic plausibility for tessie sperm being better in this paired study design. But it had two times the rate of aneuploidy, meaning that perhaps there's more aneuploid sperm in the tessie that doesn't make it into the ejaculate. So this could be a significant confounder to the effect on DNA fragmentation. They concluded that using testicular sperm instead of ejaculate in men without a history of failed IVF and with no evaluation of DNA fragmentation was not only not helpful in this study, but harmful. And they cautioned that we should be cautious in expanding the indication of tessie in the absence of evidence as using testicular sperm uh, instead of ejaculated. Personally, I want to commend the authors for publishing this very interesting study. They made a clinical change based on reasonable biologic plausibility and evidence of benefit in other patient populations. They then had the thoughtfulness to rigorously assess the results of this clinical change and publish the results even if they were negative. You do have to wonder if those who elected to have TESI were somehow poor prognosis, despite the authors for adjusting for whatever covariates they could. You always wonder if there's still residual confounding in these types of study, despite careful uh, attempts to adjust for that. For this reason, I think this particular question is very difficult to study retrospectively, but it's also a very challenging question to study prospectively because how do you get men to agree to be randomized between ejaculating into a cup versus having surgical dissection of their testes? That's also a very challenging RCT to perform. So I thought this was a very uh, interesting study and perhaps gives us caution to expanding the indications for testes beyond what they currently are. Yeah, I think it begs the question of whether or not we should be encouraging all TESI patients to undergo PGT, even in those who are otherwise young and healthy. You're saying that because of the increased risk of sperm aneuploidy in TESI samples? Yes. What do you think? Oh, I want to be careful of an overreach there, Eve. I don't want to start <laughs> recommending things that easily, but uh, interesting idea. Perhaps another thing that we further need to study. I mean, I, I get the point that you're making, even I get Kurt's counterpoint of caution. <laughs> and now we're uh, going to move on to the next section of the journal, which is the assisted reproductive section. And Eve, you have a article on COVID during the pandemic. Thanks, Micah. This next article, I think, is also really interesting and thought-provoking. The title of the paper is Universal SARS-CoV-2 PCR Screening and ART in a COVID-19 Pandemic Epicenter, Screening and Cycle Outcomes from a New York Fertility Center. And this was authored by Jacqueline Shaw 
with senior author Jamie Griffo from NYU. This was a retrospective cohort study of all patients seeking ART at a single academic fertility center in New York City. All of our listeners are acutely aware of the pause in fertility treatment in the early COVID-19 pandemic. And this was in line with state health department recommendations for non-emergency care in order to preserve PPE and reduce the burden on hospital systems. So this study was started right at the time that care was resuming and all cycles from June 2019 until February 2021 were eligible for inclusion. The authors described their three-tier safety protocols. They had mandatory pre-procedure PCR testing, revised office protocols with social distancing, and required employee safety protocols. Their primary outcome was the number of positive COVID-19 cases in patients who are already in stimulation. The secondary outcomes were cycle outcomes compared with before the COVID-19 pandemic, adverse outcomes in COVID-canceled cycles, and center-specific COVID-19 detection rates compared with New York City cases. Here's what they found. First, there was an overall increase in cycles compared to pre-pandemic numbers. Cycle outcomes were not different. And I have to say, we have similarly seen this in our centers, a huge rush for fertility treatments. Cancellation rates overall were low and were mostly due to poor response to stimulation. Interestingly, they identified only seven patients who were COVID-19 positive. Six of these were identified during stimulation and had cycles canceled. Of those six, four had known contacts and two were asymptomatic at the time of testing. So just to reiterate those numbers, there were 1,693 cycles that were initiated, and of those, six patients were found to be positive, with two of those being asymptomatic positives. The distribution of positive cases followed the surge of cases in New York City. So what can we take away from this study? The authors state that the COVID infection rates were low in this population of patients, they conclude that IVF programs can remain in operation during global pandemics, and the take-home points were that universal screening and standardized safety protocols worked. There was a reflections piece accompanying this piece that was written by Jackie Lee and Jen Kawas from Emory. Jen Kawas is on the ASRM COVID-19 task force. They point out that the study population was primarily white women with less than 5% representation from Hispanic and Black women. This highlights the disparity in access to infertility care, and they really question whether these data are generalizable to other cities. My take on the paper is a little bit different. I really question the utility of episodic COVID-19 testing in those who are asymptomatic. I think we need much more data on this issue. Anecdotally, in each of my kids' schools last year, they did weekly testing. Every single week, all kids were tested in both the high school of over 2,000 kids and elementary school K through eight, and there were no cases that were picked up of asymptomatic infection. There were plenty of kids who got COVID over the course of the school year, but they presented with symptoms. One time during an IVF cycle testing or once a week testing in a school setting just may not be the answer. In this paper, we don't really know the true N of how many patients in the NYU practice got COVID. We just know that PCR testing in asymptomatic patients identified two of nearly 1,700 patients. 
These patients were already in cycles, and so we don't know how many patient cycles were not started because of COVID infections, how many patients in their diagnostic workups got COVID. And so I think that I would interpret the findings with a little bit of caution. And I think that we need more data on best strategies for mitigation. We're clearly not there yet, given that the pandemic is still raging um, almost a year and a half after the onset. I guess we're almost two years by the time this is. So I think we need more data and mitigation strategies, given that it is October of 2021 and the pandemic first emerged in December of 2019. Eve, I think those are great points and great points from the the reflections. You're also on the COVID task force for ASRM. So uh, I know this data is out there, but can you just reemphasize to us about the vaccine. Should pregnant women get the vaccine? Should infertile women, should infertile women undergoing treatment get the vaccine? And maybe the specific pointed question is, is there a better time if you're undergoing infertility treatment to get the vaccine than any other time? Yeah, thanks. I will say this firmly and fiercely at every opportunity. Uh, Every woman who is of reproductive age should get the vaccine. I think everyone should actually get the vaccine, but particularly those patients that are considering pregnancy. What we do know is that pregnancy is high risk for complications from COVID-19. There's a higher rate of ICU admission. There's a higher rate of maternal mortality, and there's a much higher rate of complications in those who are not vaccinated. And I think our Surgeon General really said it best, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated at this point. And so I I really cannot reiterate that point enough. And I think what's gonna be really interesting in the rear view mirror of this pandemic is to look back at all of the different studies and all of the different recommendations to learn how the pandemic evolved and what we can do when the next pandemic hits. Because if you follow the public health guidance and the CDC and some of the leaders in our field, they feel strongly that this is not the only pandemic that we are going to encounter in our lifetime. And so I think it's gonna be really important to look back to find out what we learned, what we did well, what we can improve upon so that we can optimize not just fertility care, but optimize care for everybody when the next pandemic hits. I get asked that question every day from patients, and I think we cannot emphasize it enough or say it enough times as a a field. Get the vaccine today. Get it as soon as you can. As a military officer, I get asked every day for waivers. For people not to get the vaccination, we do not give you those waivers. You need to get the vaccination today. So please, everyone hear what you just said. So, Kurt, you are next. We're moving on to early pregnancy and ectopic pregnancy, something you know little about, but uh, give it your best shot at at telling us what you think about this article. Sure. It's, It's a pleasure that I can talk about this next paper, which is titled Kalpanin 2 is a novel biomarker for ectopic pregnancy by Dr. Zhang, a first author and a different Dr. Zhang senior author, both from Shanghai, China. This was a well-written article um, looking to find a novel biomarker for ectopic pregnancy. I mean, the search for biomarkers for abnormal pregnancy or an ectopic pregnancy have spanned and continue to span decades. While there clearly has been some incremental efficacy in the diagnosis of an ectopic pregnancy as well as miscarriage, we still rely on relatively imperfect methods such as serial HCG values and repeat ultrasounds. 
while we're all good at this and we can probably state the algorithms off the top of our head, we don't often recognize how often these algorithms sometimes um, lead us astray. Now, I know I've contributed to some of this data for this form of diagnosis, but we need to recognize that, that this is an imperfect science and there are clearly exceptions to the rules. Women with an ectopic pregnancy clearly can have a normal rising HCG and some still do rupture. Perhaps more importantly, there have been a number of cases identified where women have what's considered an abnormal HCG, yet the pregnancy has progressed to become a normal and delivered pregnancy. In some cases, women conceiving with IVF have actually had a value that's decreased before it's actually gone on to increase and grow normally to result in a normal pregnancy. So the first take-home message before I even get to the paper is we have to be careful of the diagnosis. So, we all look for the day when we can dramatically improve or at least complement this diagnosis, perhaps with serum biomarkers and what we might call a companion diagnostic. This paper evaluates a new marker called calponin-2, which is an actin-related protein found in many tissues. It looks like calponin-2, as opposed to 1 and 3, may be expressed in villous stromal tissues as opposed to muscles um, ubiquitous in the body. The authors appropriately hypothesize that, therefore, such a molecule may be associated with cell tension or cellular matrix, that it may be different whether a pregnancy is implanted in the fallopian tube or in the, the uterus. What makes this molecule closer to the holy grail, as determined by the authors, is that they have determined in fallopian tube samples and in serum that values of calponin-2 are higher in ectopic pregnancy rather than lower. Most biomarkers studied to date have been lower in ectopic pregnancy, perhaps not reflecting location, but reflecting a non-viable growing gestation. This makes prediction even more difficult when you include miscarriage, which may be intermediate between an ectopic pregnancy and a normal pregnancy. So, the authors go on to evaluate serum levels of approximately 85 women with an ectopic pregnancy compared to about 40 with a miscarriage and 40 with an ongoing pregnancy. While this paper describes the utility of a biomarker in a pregnancy's online location, in actuality, this study evaluates women with the diagnosis already made. This is not uncommon in biomarker development because you want to make sure your molecule is present in a well-phenotyped individual of quote-unquote advanced disease. The results of the study are pretty impressive. They have an excellent area under the curve of 93% and a sensitivity and specificity each above 90%. These are excellent test characteristics from a statistical point of view, but we all recognize that we wouldn't use a test that still has a 10% error rate. So while the author should be congratulated about finding a novel marker, we need to also have some caution about those findings. Um, findings like this need to be validated. Um, often promising biomarkers do not validate and fall the way of Carly Rae Jepsen, a one-hit wonder. Call me maybe. Additionally, of course these markers have to be tested in women that present with a PUL before we can actually advocate use in a population of, of PUL. And finally, all biomarkers need to be prospectively studied so that predictive value, both positive or negative, can be calculated because that's the test characteristic that we want as a clinician and as a patient. If my test is positive or negative, what's the chance that my test is truly positive or negative? Not how many people did it diagnose or not diagnose. So my favorite part of this study was a very good description of the balance of finding the correct test characteristics for a potential diagnostic test by Dr. Bardos and some guy named Micah Hill. Perhaps one of my favorite statistical anecdotes is the development of a receiver-operator curve. 
while the Royal Air Force was trying to protect England from German bombers with radar in World War II, they developed a mathematical algorithm to help balance missing a bomber and letting it pass through the English Channel or calling out their fighters every time a flock of seagulls um, pass through the channel. So what's worse, letting a bomber through or shooting down some, um, some geese or seagulls to provide Christmas dinner for those underneath? Well, they balanced sensitivity and specificity in a way to optimize it, and that's what's called a receiver operator curve. This analogy is a very good one for the diagnosis of women at risk for ectopic pregnancy, especially when they present with a PUL. If you look for every ectopic pregnancy being sensitive, we will inevitably interrupt interuterine pregnancies while trying to make that diagnosis, and this is a big error. Alternatively, we only look for normal pregnancies and wait until the last minute, quote-unquote, maximizing specificity, we're going to miss a lot of ectopic pregnancies, allowing ruptures and clearly decreasing the utility of such a test. So we also go through this logic when we're evaluating serial HCGs, the way we diagnose a non-viable pregnancy currently. I want to again advocate that I've come to the conclusion that we should be erring on the side of specificity or giving each pregnancy a chance in the absence of clinical symptoms or real true signs of ectopic pregnancies. In other words, we shouldn't rush to make the diagnosis of ectopic pregnancy because the error of interrupting a normal pregnancy would therefore be iatrogenic. That's why the rate of HCG that defines a normal pregnancy has been declining, and the discriminatory zone, if you even use it, has actually been increasing. So congratulations to Dr. Zhang and to Dr. Bardos and Hill on presenting an article that makes us think about this topic in a very logical way. The identification of serum calponin-2 is a contribution to the literature, and I look forward to its validation and further use, but unfortunately, it's simply not ready for clinical utility. So great scientific contribution, and I hope we make a breakthrough in this really important area of clinical medicine. Yeah, that's really informative, and I love the origin of the ROC curve. I can't help but wonder whether or not we're searching for the holy grail that doesn't exist, whether there's a single biomarker that can be predictive. And I wonder whether or not the combination of a multitude of biomarkers might ultimately be better suited to achieve that goal. What do you think? I think you're a plant in the organization. Um, so I, I, I've been working on multiplexing biomarkers for a while now, and I think we might have some that have some really good utility. But again, I don't want to be Carly Rae Jepsen. I want to make sure that this actually works and uh, hopefully more literature to come. But if there is a marker that can diagnose ectopic pregnancy, it has to be higher in ectopic. And that's why this, was, this study was exciting. And Kurt, my follow-up question on that was, do you think that we'll get to the point being an expert on this, where a single test at a single time, even if it's a suite of biomarkers, will give us that place at being at a less than 1% error of, of misdiagnosing a, a viable pregnancy. In other words, will it ever be better than serial HCGs? I assume you think it will be since you're studying it, but how close are we? And do you think that's realistic? Actually, Mike, I think that's an important question. We don't recognize that our tests today are not very good at a one time. Even ultrasound only has about 70% accuracy. So I don't envision we're going we're to find one biomarker that's going to be 100% diagnostic. I think we're going to find a biomarker that's going to complement ultrasound in the cases where there's uncertainty and vice versa. So I think we're going to get a group of things put together to make the diagnosis better, not just one you know, yes or no. Eve, I interrupted you. Did you have a follow-up question or comment for Kurt on that? Okay. I was just going to make fun of him for knowing 
call me maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know Curl is that, uh, well, I guess not up to date. It's 10 years ago, but. <laughs> well, I, you guys need to sing it now. We, we need to put that in the background. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, boys and girls, that was Fireside Statistics with Dr. Kurt Barnhart, and I am here for it. All right, Eve, we're moving on to you next for one of the articles that I was most interested to hear what people think about an ambient temperature and fertility or ovarian reserve. Yeah, thanks, Micah. This is a hot topic on the environment and reproduction, and I think this is one of many papers that are going to be emerging sharing data from these types of studies. This article was written by Audrey Gaskins from Emory with senior author Francine Layden from Harvard. As we all know, climate change is widely recognized. It is the greatest global threat in the 21st century. While the hazards of increasing ambient temperature on human health are widely recognized, there's also mounting evidence linking maternal heat exposure to increased risk of things like stillbirth, preterm birth, low birth weight, and birth defects. Animal data has long documented a link between maternal hyperthermia induced by high ambient temperatures and reduced fertility, largely mediated through an effect on oocyte developmental capacity. So this study was part of the EARTH study. The EARTH study stands for Environment and Reproductive Health. It's a prospective study that's being housed at Mass General Hospital and there were 631 patients that were included in this portion of the study. They got the residential address for each included patient and they were geocoded. They then looked at ambient temperature, relative humidity, and apparent temperature for the 90 days before these patients' first antral follicle scans. They looked at three specific time values that correlated to oocyte development, three months before the scan, the month before the scan, and then two weeks before the scan, representing preantral to preovulatory development, early antral to preovulatory, and then final stages of antral follicle development. Women with PCOS were excluded, and all scans were done by a reproductive endocrinologist on day three of the menstrual cycle. They found that warmer ambient air temperatures were associated with lower values for antral follicle count and there was a persistent negative linear association between temperature and antral follicle count across the entire range of temperatures observed in this study. And the association was similar across all age groups. There's a lot to unpack here. It's really novel and, like many of the articles, very thought-provoking. I can't help but wonder, though, how reliable are these reports of temperature? How reliable is antral follicle count alone as a marker of ovarian reserve? And why didn't the authors use a more objective measure like AMH? I also can't help but question what about the impact of obesity or other maternal factors that may impact ovarian reserve markers. I really commend the authors for trying to study this. It's really complex, and I think they did an excellent job. But I would expect to see lower fertility rates or more infertility in countries closer to the equator and lower birth rates in the spring as those conceptions occur in the summer. And to date, that just hasn't been found. So I'm curious to see what you think about this, Kurt, Micah, Michael. What do you make of this article? 
I struggled with how important I felt the findings were. And I think this is a great example of maybe how clinicians think of things a little bit differently than our, our fantastic reproductive epidemiologists that are studying these. I, I don't know that as a clinician, I would have felt like there was the biologic plausibility to study this or that the impact truly is there. Or is this just sort of statistical noise? I don't know. I really, Audrey Gaskins is one of the leading, you know, rock star epidemiologists, but I really struggled as I read this paper on what the clinical relevance is. They didn't see an effect in the summer or it was decreased during the hotter months. It seemed to be more temperature in the winter, which is counterintuitive if they're, and then they talk about that in the discussion. The effect size was pretty small, 1.6% decline in AFC. You know, what's a 1% decline in your antral follicle count? If you, unless you have 100 antrals, it's not even one fewer antral per woman. And so you'd have to have at least a 7-degree change to even get to one decreased antral follicle count for a patient. And would that even matter? And then the fact that this was studied in a cross-sectional manner, I mean, it was a single AFC, and then they looked back at the three months temperature exposure before that, I would love to see this validated prospectively longitudinally in a single woman does the temperature change her AFC over time. To me, that would be more compelling that there is an effect, but even then you still get back to does that effect size of, of 1.6% per degree clinically matter? Is that really a fertility issue or just something we're picking up on a test? Um, so, Micah, your points are, are really good ones, and I think that we that really um, shines a light on sometimes the difference between a, a real clinician and an epidemiologic finding. I mean, this is an epidemiologic study that's a novel finding that I think is done rigorously that we should believe. But sometimes we don't appreciate that the scope or the the granularity of, of epidemiologic studies is just not what we want it to be. You know, the, the microscope of association is not small enough for us to say, you know, what change in temperature, what degree in antral follicles, we're, we're, when we want those answers. So I look at this more on, this is a really good study that shows us that this is an important aspect. Don't have to memorize the numbers, don't have to tell your patients, but I believe it. I believe that, that, that this study is showing that there is a temperature effect on fertility, and on a gross population level, that's going to matter. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I mean, I, I think that it's compelling and it provides a lot of, of theory as to why infertility may be becoming more prevalent with time. But I, I do struggle with how do we answer these really big questions and are we doing the right tests to get to the underlying etiologies? I would agree with what was said earlier. I think, you know, I would, at the biological plausibility, I do believe that there is potentially something there. I think with global warming and all the climate change, it's hard to not believe that all these would have an impact, especially based on animal studies prior. That being said, though, um, Dr. Feinberg brought up a great point with how I would expect different regions of the world to already be showing a difference that we have not seen yet. And I don't know if that's because potentially the studies over there just haven't been done as well, or we haven't been looking at them right more markers, as she said, but I, I would expect to see some sort of gradient in the data. Yeah, I think we're still at, like, you know, Google Earth level, not street level on this question. I mean, you, you just have to look at the, the overall picture. Again, epidemiology simply does not have the granularity to answer the questions that we want as clinicians. I was going to say one final point is that we're looking at a population of infertile patients, and I can't help but wonder how would these data change if you looked at not just the patients who are in front of you in clinic, but on a more global setting, we know that access to care is a, is a large problem. 
And so are we underestimating the effect by not looking at the patients that are, are perhaps not seeking care? And my, I think those are all great points. And my final thought is just that we don't think of AMH and AFC as markers of fertility. And we have decent data on AMH that that's not the case in an infertile population. Uh, so to uh, equate a, a decrease in AFC with a decline in fertility may or may not be accurate. That's my final thought. But I, I loved hearing what all three of you thought on this because I really struggled as I read this to think about how I would integrate this data into my clinical lens. And it yeah, sounds like you just think we don't yet. Yeah, sometimes you just have to let the science flow over you, Micah, and just appreciate it as a global scope as opposed to the, the fine details of, of each finding. But, uh, but I'm glad we talked about this. This is, this is neat stuff. I will let the science flow over me, and we're going on to our next uh, study, which will be uh, done by Michael. We're talking about a, a SART database study on oocyte thaw outcomes, also a very interesting data. Michael, over to you. Thanks, Micah. When oocyte cryopreservation came off the experimental title in 2013, we thought it could be a holy grail in maneuvering around age-related fertility decline and personal life choices that women or families need to make. We were right about its need because the average maternal age at the time of first delivery is around 26 years old, up from 21 in 1972, and it shows no signs of slowing down. Now we have years of egg freezing under our belts, and some clinics may have their own outcome statistics, but what about the SART database? Can we finally answer how do women do with these frozen eggs? Well, finally, the SART database has been mined to look at the national outcomes of oocyte thaw cycle. In the paper titled, Frozen Eggs, National Autologous Oocyte Thaw Outcomes, Dr. Jennifer Kawas and Sarah Crawford and Heather Hip respectively evaluate all the autologous oocyte thaw cycles reported to the SART Clinic Outcome Reporting System from 2012 to 2018. They explored trends in the absolute number of oocyte cryopreservation and oocyte thaw cycles performed, average age at the time of cryopreservation and thaw, and the average duration of cryopreservation. Knowing that pre-implantation genetic testing plays a huge role in oocyte thaw cycles, they report outcomes for all oocyte thaw cycles stratified by the use of PGT, as well as all oocyte thaw transfers. They tried to link thaws to their original cryopreservation cycles to report on the cumulative chances of live birth in a sub-analysis, but were only able to include 45% of thaws, and these were also stratified by PGT. So there's a lot of numbers to get through with this paper that you should take a look at, but I'll give you a tease of some of the highlights. They looked at little over 6,400 oocyte thaw cycles linked back to over 54,000 cryopreservation cycles. The average time to thaw increased over the study period from 16 months to 29 months. But overall, 47% were thawed within one year and 29% were thawed after longer than 36 months. The average age at time of oocyte cryopreservation remained relatively consistent over time, averaging about 35 years old while age at the time of thaw increased from 36 to 38.5 years old throughout the study. Of course, pregnancy and live birth rates decreased as the age at the time of cryopreservation increased. The ratio of total number of oocyte stops to the total number of live births increased with ages also, as we would think, but they note that their exact ratios don't include subsequent embryo transfers and thus are not cumulative, but it does show that this is an effective age. The pregnancy and live birth rates of PGT cycles compared with oocyte thaw cycles that did not use PGT provide an incomplete picture. 
So cumulative rates, especially in cycles with PGT, should be interpreted with caution. But even taking into account subsequent FETs, there was a roughly a 15% difference in live birth rate and pregnancy rate between the groups of women in less than 35 years old and from 35 to 37 years old. The authors bring up that this is something to think about considering how we use PGT for women with such a small percentage of aneuploidy anyway. The reflection written by Dr. Eric Fleischer of RMA New York points out that nearly half of all oocyte thaw cycles were performed within one year of oocyte prior preservation, and that this small interval fails to take advantage of the true value of prior preservation, which is circumventing the impact of age. And a solid point here, that this short time to thaw would not even change most patients in the start age classification. Dr. Fleischer also gives some thoughts as to the challenges with categorizing oocyte prior preservation cycles within the SAR system and how that can impact the results that are presented as well. So all in all, this data is limited in its interpretations, but it's good to know what's going on nationally. And this paper shows us how far we have to go to answer the real questions. Well, I think the biggest take-home point, and I, I really struggle with the difference in recommendations for age of anonymous oocyte donors versus age when women are freezing eggs. So for example, we often will tell women who are using an egg donor that optimal age for finding an egg donor is 21 to 29 years old. And that's because of number of eggs that can be retrieved and oocyte quality. Yet guidance that looks at optimal age for egg freezing often says under the age of 38 or 36, depending on the study that you're reading. And I really question why we don't hold ourselves to the same standards that we hold oocyte donors, meaning shouldn't we be encouraging egg freezing between ages 21 and 29 to have the same outcomes? Yeah, and I think the main reason maybe we don't is the studies that have shown that those at that age, maybe you're less likely to ultimately use them because you're not infertile and you um, find a partner and get pregnant without needing to use those oocytes. So balancing that, the likelihood of coming back to use them versus the age at which they are best used, I think is, is a challenge. So I'm just going to give a little plug for a study that I have been doing with Jen Bakkinson, who's our current second-year fellow. And we looked at that utilization by age, and we've looked at not just primary infertility, but the idea of secondary infertility. Because all of those studies that have looked at utilization by age have really only looked at having one child. And I don't want to, I don't want to give too much of a preview, but let's just say that when you incorporate the entire desired family size, that equation changes. And so I think that's, again, my bias fully disclosed. I think that's a really important consideration. I think that's a great point, Eve. The other thing that I really took home from this is it seemed that the efficiency per egg to have a live birth was maybe lower than at least what we in, in my practice counsel people on as far as the number of eggs that they, they need to freeze. And I think the current papers, we use Joby Doyle's, but there are others uh, that are out there, uh, are very much modeled on the efficiency from fresh IVF and not really from actual frozen oocyte outcomes. And I just think this is important data, and hopefully we'll continue to get more data on this to be able to counsel our patients as to the expectation of the fertility potential from those oocytes that they have. 
Well, thank you, Micah. I'm going to move this now to a topic more on PCOS away from ART, and I'm going to describe the article Anti-Malarian Hormone to Determine Polycystic Ovarian Morphology by Dr. Dietz de Luce, first author, and Dr. Leven, senior author from Rotterdam in the Netherlands. So as a reproductive endocrinologist, we're all very familiar with polycystic ovary syndrome. Its prevalence is very high, usually quoted between 8 and 13 percent, and it's the most common endocrine pathology that we'll come across. Having said that, we all know there's quite a bit of controversy regarding its diagnosis and the implications of the diagnosis. One of the biggest controversies is the association of polycystic ovarian morphology with actual disease. This paper is not addressing whether we should be diagnosing PCOS by the number of follicles, but instead is addressing the important question, which is, is there a way to determine polycystic ovarian morphology, and thus perhaps the diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome, with a single blood test, AMH? So this is a large study to validate the cutoff of AMH using the Alexis Plus immunoassay by Roche to determine polycystic ovarian morphology which then may help us again with diagnosis. The study has a clever acronym called Aphrodite, and it's a retrospective non-interventional multicenter study conducted from 2018 to 2019. Of note, this was a collaboration between the university investigators at Rotterdam and Roche Diagnostics. So women were screened and diagnosed for PCOS using current standard of care and the Rotterdam criteria, and they were further subdivided into phenotypes based on androgenicity, menstrual cycle characteristics, and polycystic ovarian morphology. This analysis evaluates AMH levels to best find a cutoff that would determine and differentiate those with and without polycystic ovarian morphology. Of note, the analysis appropriately established an AMH cutoff in a development cohort and then validated this cutoff in a separate validation cohort. This sounds straightforward enough, but of course there's much more subtlety. For example, in this case, AMH levels may also be associated with age and potentially body mass index, as well as the number of antral follicles. So a number of models were created to take into account these different variables, but in the end, they were able to find out what appears to be a reasonable cutoff for AMH with this assay. So in summary, this study is a very large cohort, perhaps the largest to date, to demonstrate good correlation between AMH and the current diagnostic properties to assess polycystic ovarian morphology. Ultimately, the cutoff they propose is a level of 3.2 nanograms per milliliter, or 23 picomoles per liter. Please note that there may be differences in AMH assays, and let me remind you that this is using the Roche-Alexis system. Now, we talked about diagnostic characteristics in the previous study, and once again, this had excellent characteristics with an area under the curve of 93% and a sensitivity and specificity in the high 80s. The authors also do a good job pointing out differences in other studies. For example, there's a Taiwanese study performed with the Beckman-Coulter assay that uses a cutoff of 4.7 with, again, excellent sensitivities and specificity in the, in the mid-80s. Of course, it gets more complicated. There's another study with the Beckman-Coulter assay suggesting a cutoff of 5, which would give you sensitivity and specificities of 90. So what do we take away from this? I think we all intuitively expect that there's a correlation between AMH and the number of antral follicles. I also think that we intuitively understand that there may be a useful cutoff at which we can say the level is high enough that we can consider someone to have polycystic ovarian morphology. 
Personally, I think the study adds to my internal logic and that when I'm evaluating a patient or looking at lab results, but I'm not sure I'm ready to commit to memorizing this cutoff and start making a diagnosis based solely by one AMH level. Congratulations to the author on a, a very well-conducted, well-presented, large population-based study. These data clearly add to our understanding and scientific advancement in this very common clinical situation. So, Kurt, if someone had an AMH over 10, you wouldn't say without hesitating that they have PCOS? Uh, I agree with you. I probably would, um, although I understand it's not part of the diagnostic criteria yet. But what if the level is 3.5? What if the level is 4.1? As a fellow, I have to ask, do you want the board's answer or do you want the <laughs> what I actually do answer? As a board examiner, I cannot comment on that first part of your question. But tell me what you do as a fellow. As a fellow with over 10, I would be highly suspicious and then really dig through their chart to see if commented on any PCOS. But I would be you know, just wondering, did they meet other Rotterdam criteria? And then so I would see if we were missing something along those lines. So again, it's intuitive to try to find a cutoff, and it makes for good statistics. But... <laughs> Just as Simone said, we're not relying on a diagnosis just by AMH. If, if you had an AMH of 10, we're still going to have an ultrasound. We're still going to have androgen levels. We're still going to argue whether we should use the NIH or the Rotterdam criteria. So this paper adds something, but it's just not black and white. Yeah, I think it's, it's safe to say that we're just not there yet. And I, I think by definition, PCOS being a syndrome or a collection of morphology and markers that by definition, a syndrome isn't going to have just one single characteristic. Well said. So as always, Kurt and Eve, it was a pleasure talking with you today. And Michael, thank you for joining us always behind the scenes, but we appreciate having your voice today. Uh, for all of our listeners, we covered just a few of our favorite articles from this month, but the journal is full of good science, including the video articles. If you haven't watched our video articles, you can find them on the uh, Fertility and Sterility and the Dialogue site. You can also find them on YouTube, where we have over 4 million video views and over 12,000 followers. So look for us on YouTube. Also join us in October live from ASRM for Journal Club Global. We're going to be talking about recent evidence from Fertility and Sterility on optimizing the frozen embryo transfer cycle with experts Jim Seegers and Valerie Baker from Johns Hopkins, uh, Eric Widra and Kate Devine from Shady Grove Fertility, and Rachel Wynott and Brad Van Voorhees from the University of Iowa. So please join us live at uh, ASRM 2021 in Baltimore for that journal club. Wonderful, Micah. And I also want to tell all our listeners, go out and find a new listener. Expand the word and uh, get FNSAR out to all of your friends and colleagues. Thanks, Micah. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks, Simone. Super fun to do this episode. I can't believe we've been at this for more than a year. I want to thank our listeners for listening. And a special shout out, thank you to Michael Simone, who always is our fantastic producer. And it was really fun to have you on the episode with us today. I hope you'll join us again. Happy to pitch hit today. Thanks for having me on. I don't think this is going to be like a Mike Richards moment, but I'm happy to come in and help when it's needed. It's great being with you guys. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility On Air, brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. 
This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.